Children's Church. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's great to worship with you today. I'm grateful that you made it here. You could have stayed in bed. It's probably warmer there, probably a little more comfortable than that pew, but uh, here's what you've decided to do instead. You've decided to join with your faith family and together lift our voices to anchor our eyes and to have our souls strengthened again, new energy, new encouragement given to us. And uh, I'm grateful that uh, you've made the choice to dwell with us in the praises of the Lord. Hope you brought your Bible with you today. And uh, would you go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Micah? Uh, We're beginning a new sermon series today in the book of Micah. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find Micah chapter 1 on page 823. And uh, otherwise, don't be afraid to use your table of contents. Micah is a small book, kind of towards the the end part of the Old Testament. Uh, And uh, it may be a challenge to find it today, but I trust that by the time our study's done, uh, you'll be able to find Micah super fast. Um, We're going to be in Micah for the next several weeks. And if you're new with us, Uh, The way we are going to study Micah is the way we normally approach the Word of God on a Sunday morning. And uh, there's any number of reasons why we choose to study the Bible this way on Sundays. Uh, We we value uh, a verse-by-verse study through whole books of the Bible. Uh, Reasons for that are many. One is uh, we believe that all of Scripture is God's Word. It all has God's authority, His inspiration. And so we want to interact with all of the Bible. If it were just up to me to pick random passages week after week, I'd just pick, pick the home run passages. And we'd never dwell, probably not in a book like Micah, except for a few exceptions perhaps. Um, but to go all the way through, I probably wouldn't choose that. You wouldn't either. But because we value all of God's Word, we're going to go through all of this together. Uh, also, when we uh, go through an entire book of the Bible, it, it forces us to work through uh, some really challenging passages. And I, I always find encouragement and strength whenever a passage that was previously confusing or troublesome becomes clear. I can make sense of it, and I understand uh, who I am in relation to that passage. And so um, I want to encourage you to stick with us through this study. Um, the book of Micah is, a, a, of course, a brilliant piece of Scripture and uh, really important for us today. And so uh, I want to start by introducing you to the prophet. I want to start by introducing you to his message in the world in which he lived. Uh, and I want us to do that before we dive into Micah's message here in chapter 1. But look with me, chapter 1, verse 1, Micah introduces himself to us. Here's what he says. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's Micah's autobiography. That's all that we get about this man. We, we don't know a lot about Micah. We know his name. We know his hometown. Uh, we know uh, uh, the time period in which he conducted his ministry. 
But outside of that, we don't know his dad's name. We don't know his wife's name. We don't know uh, what his college major was. We don't know what his likes and dislikes were. We, we know very little about the man. We just know uh, he's Micah from Morasheth, and he lived and ministered during the reigns of these three kings of Judah. Um, Morasheth, we think, is a small town located about 25 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. If you happen to grab a bulletin when you walked in this morning, on the back is a map uh, with a bit of information about the book of Micah. And on that map, if you look sort of center left, you'll see Morasheth. Morasheth is on a boundary right between uh, Philistia and Judah. So uh, Morasheth is, is a relatively small town, not a buzzing metropolis by any stretch. Uh, but uh, Micah lived with a foot in two different worlds. Living in Morasheth, where that town was located, he has one foot in Philistia, one foot in Judah, one foot in Gentile lands and culture, another foot in Jewish lands and culture and religion as well. Uh, perhaps one of the more important details about Micah is the meaning of his name. The name Micah means this, it's a question, who is like the Lord? Now you can understand that question in two different ways. When that question is aimed at God, it's a statement of praise. Who's like the Lord? There's no one like him. Bring all your challengers to the, to the table, but there's no one like him. He is God and God alone. Who is like the Lord? That's a statement of praise. But when you take that question and you turn it back to God's people, it's a statement of judgment. Who is like the Lord? Who among us is living in his way, is, is living in covenant faithfulness? Who among us is holy as he is holy? That's the heartbeat of Micah's message. He's going to ask that question of his people. He's going to make that declaration of God, and he's going to call us to rest in the grace of God in the face of our own judgment. Now, what's the timeline of Micah's ministry? If you know a bit about the history in which he lived, uh, it can give some clarity to the content of his message. Uh, and so uh, here's a timeline that might be helpful. Spared no expense, hired high-end graphic designers uh, who used AI to develop this. I did it on my couch, actually. So here's, uh, here's a timeline of the history of Israel in one slide that might give you a snapshot of, of where Micah lived and ministered. So the, the history of Israel begins with Israel as a united kingdom, one nation under the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon. But then 931 BC, Solomon dies and the kingdom split into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The capital city of the northern kingdom, Israel, was Samaria. The capital city of the southern kingdom, Judah, is Jerusalem. And so these two kingdoms uh, live on this parallel track for a number of years. You see their end dates in 722 BC, the Assyrian army uh, came and destroyed uh, excuse me, destroyed Samaria and took captive uh, all of Israel, uh, God's judgment on the northern kingdom for their sin. And in 586 BC, uh, Babylon, the new world power, comes to town and they take Jerusalem and Judah. And so the exile of God's people uh, begins anew then. When does Micah 
conduct his ministry. He says it's during the reigns of these three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, we have records of their reigns and their lives in the book of 2 Kings. You can read about these kings there. Jotham, he was an okay king. By okay, I mean uh, he walked with relative covenant loyalty to the Lord. That's how uh, these kings of Israel and Judah were evaluated. What was their relationship to God like? Not their wealth, not their power, but their covenant loyalty. Jotham, uh, he, he was okay. He worshiped the Lord, but he didn't eradicate idolatry in the kingdom. And then Ahaz came on the scene, and he was nasty business. Brutal, murderous, a tyrant, an idolater, an absolute monster of a human being. Following Ahaz was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was a good king. He walked with the Lord, eradicated idolatry, did the things a king that walks with the Lord is supposed to do. This is the window of Micah's ministry. It's, uh, it, it's not more than 30 years, probably not less than 16 years. And so in this book of Micah, what we have is a collection of his oracles. We have a collection of, of Micah's messages from the Lord to the people. These were spoken before they were written. So these are the collected sayings of Micah. Uh, so what could come from a, a lifetime of ministry over, say, about 30 years, you and I get to read in roughly 20 minutes. That's all it would take you to read the book of Micah start to finish. That uh, would be about 20 minutes. Now, what's Micah's message? What's the heartbeat of, of, his, of his ministry to the people of Judah and Israel? Well, if you look again at the back of your bulletin, there's a paragraph that explains that in just a little more detail. But the heartbeat of Micah's message is, is this back and forth between the judgment of God and the grace of God, or the judgment of God and the forgiveness of God. And so God is bringing judgment against his people. Mike is going to announce that. He's going to announce, in his ministry, he's going to announce judgment to the northern kingdom, but primarily his focus is on the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's going to announce this coming judgment of God, but then with that, he's going to also speak of the unstoppable grace of God. And in all of this, he is calling God's people back to God. God's going to come and scatter his people as judgment for their sins, but he's also the shepherd king who in his own covenant faithfulness to his own word is going to draw them back to himself to forgive them and restore them. The book of Micah is a heavy book. At times, it's rather intense. But when you move from descriptions in Micah of God's judgment to God's grace. It has the same sort of effect as going from crucifixion Friday to resurrection Sunday. So there are going to be Sundays where the subject matter is rather heavy. And there will be times perhaps that Micah's message sounds repetitive, but we can never lose sight of the seriousness of God's judgment and the beauty of His grace. Micah's message is essential for us today for any number of reasons. One is we, we just don't understand the judgment of God. We don't sit in that doctrine. We're not comfortable with it. it. It's not what we want. Like if you're opening the Bible just to read for funsies, you're not looking for a passage on judgment. You want something encouraging and uplifting. And, 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 I, and I'm the same way. 
But we have to understand this aspect of our God, this very real, true, and sobering aspect. We need to understand His judgment. Another reason Micah's message is important is because he speaks repeatedly about the problem of injustice, especially as injustice is practiced by God's people. When God's people bear His name, but they chase after money at the expense of others or power at the expense of others, when they enact social injustice, I know that's a loaded term, but Mike is going to define it for us in a way that is biblical and proper. When God's people perpetrate injustice against others, God sees and God moves. We need to hear that message. Another important message from Micah is that uh, Micah amplifies God's grace to sinful people. Uh, Micah doesn't just come in with a hammer and and just destroy the reader. He goes through three very specific movements, judgment to grace, judgment to grace, judgment to grace. We'll see that over and over again throughout this letter, and we need that grace. So that's Micah. And having met the prophet, it's time now to hear his voice. And Micah opens his work by teaching us about the judgment of God. I want us to get foundational doctrine today about the judgment of God. And so Micah teaches us three characteristics of God's judgment. Follow along with me as I read Micah chapter 1, and I'll start in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morishite. What he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into a valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. Because of this, I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. For her wound is incurable and has reached even Judah. It has approached my people city gate as far as Jerusalem. Whenever you are reading through Micah, if you're going segment by segment, chapter by chapter, uh, one piece of information you want to be clear on is to whom is Micah speaking? And you've got generally two options. It'll either be the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. More often than not, it's going to be Judah. Sometimes it's both at the same time. And here we have a mix of those. Uh, He speaks to both kingdoms, but his eyes are really set on the northern kingdom of Israel. 
though he is a southerner, so to speak, uh, though he is uh, from relatively far away from Israel, from Samaria, he has a word from the Lord for them. And it's an intense word, isn't it? I mean, we, he, he, he doesn't start off with like an icebreaker or a platitude or, so, you know, here's things we have in common. He just gets right to work. And there's an urgency in his speech He wants us to understand the judgment of God. And so he begins by teaching us these three characteristics of God's judgment. These are what God's people need to understand about God's judgment. The first thing he teaches us is that God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is an absolute certainty. So in verse 2, Micah begins by summoning all the earth to a courtroom. It's time for judgment. Right? Verse 2, he says, listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord will be a witness against you. And so the inhabitants of earth are summoned not as spectators, but as defendants. Their creator has charges against them. That tells us something about God right from the very beginning of Micah's message. He's not just the God of Moresheth. He's not just the God of Judah or the God of Israel or the God of the Hebrews. He is the God of the whole earth. And so whether people acknowledge him or not, they will answer to him. And then in verse 3, the Lord makes his appearance. Verse 2, the people come. Verse 3, the Lord comes down. He leaves his holy temple, and his arrival alters the landscape, poetically speaking. So in verse 4, mountains melt and the valleys split. They they melt like wax by a fire. Prior to this, the inhabitants of earth may have felt like God was far away. We're just here doing our own thing, living our own way. Who is God? Don't know. Where is he? Not close. He's far away. And they might have thought maybe that God was uh, under their control. They've got things sorted out. They know how to appease Him to get good rain for their crops and, and, and fertility for their families, whatever the situation might be. But Micah's message begins with this startling revelation. God is neither distant nor is He safe. He sees His people. He knows their lives. And He is coming with judgment Now, with language like this, what do you think Micah's rhetorical goal was in his opening speech? What response should the reader give at this earth-altering arrival of the God of judgment? Micah, I think, wants us to tremble. He wants us to tremble for a, a couple of reasons. One is because God's judgment on sin is terrifying. It is not metaphorical. It is not poetic. But another reason we might tremble is because no one is innocent. The verdict against us is accurate, and every single one of us has sinned against God. Even the Apostle Paul echoes this language when he he looks at the landscape of the planet and he says, there are none who are righteous, no, not one. In Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the message of Micah here in his opening words. We face real spiritual danger when we look at a passage like this and we treat it as if it's only symbolic. You and I may not like the message. It it may rub against the ways we 
picture God or think of Him, but we have to hear what the prophet says. We've all sinned against God. We're all guilty. The biblical understanding of humanity rubs against the preferences of our culture. The Bible teaches us that that we are broken in sin, that we are in need of rescue. But the world in which we live teaches us that we're not broken, and so our greatest need is affirmation. Now, there's something right and beautiful about the world's take on humanity. It's right that all people are beautiful, that all people possess intrinsic value. But that's true not because humans decided it was true. It's true because the Bible teaches us that's how God made people. He made all people in His image. So therefore, all people are beautiful and valuable. But the world around us is not at all comfortable with a God of judgment, a God that we have wronged, a God of boundaries who enforces those boundaries. We're not comfortable with a God who would find us guilty. Comfortable or not, God's judgment on our sin is a certainty, and we have to believe that from the beginning of this message. God's judgment on our sin is certain. Second thing Micah teaches us about God's judgment is that God's judgment is shocking. It's shocking. If if you were a part of Micah's original audience, then you were a religious person. And you might have loved the first four verses of this book. When Micah summons the inhabitants of earth, you might have said, Oh, now you're going to get it. That's right. Micah, call them in. Every single last one of them. Get them in here right now into the courtroom so they can see the judge. And then when God levels the mountains and splits the valleys open, you might be like, I told you, world, you brought this on yourself. You got this coming. You've, I've, I tried to tell you, and you, you never listened to me. So you're going to get what you've got coming to you right now. It's judgment time. And then we get to verse 5. Look at it. All this will happen because of whose rebellion? Jacob's rebellion. Whose sin? The sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what's the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? This is jaw-dropping. God's judgment is not coming to godless Assyrians or godless Philistines as you expected. The announcement of judgment is on God's own people. Jacob in verse 5 is not a reference to a specific person, though Jacob is a specific person in the Old Testament. This is a way of describing God's people in total, of speaking of the kingdom of Israel. So in verse 5 when he says this is going to happen because of Jacob's rebellion, he's saying this is going to happen because of Israel's rebellion. It's the sins of the house of Israel. And all of God's judgment is going to come because of the sin that has taken place in Samaria, the capital city, and in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah in the south. Now, he uses the phrase high place here in verse 5. He says, what's the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? What does he mean by that phrase, high place? Well, here he's referencing a location where idolatrous or perverted worship took place. In these days, uh, if you were to worship a, 
a, a false god like a Baal or an Ashtoreth or a, a, a Molech. You would create an altar on an elevated place, on a hill, on a high place. And that's where that idolatrous worship would happen. And so when he says, what's the high place of Judah? Like, like what's, what's the altar of idolatry, of perverted worship for, for all of the southern kingdom of Judah? It is the holy city itself. It's shocking language. Truly stunning to call Samaria and Jerusalem high places where idolatrous worship was taking place. But this would explain the Lord's mountain-melting anger towards His people. These capital cities are supposed to be places where God is worshipped. Instead, they've become sick with idolatry and they've infected their entire kingdoms. Now, it's super important that we keep verse 5 tied to verses 2 through 4. You see, verses 2 through 4 are full of doctrines that God's people might love. God is coming. Amen. He's going to judge the nations. Amen. And it's all because of Israel and Judah. That's the gut punch. Sadly, this wasn't the last time that this sort of word of judgment fell on God's people. In fact, this same pattern of surprise showed up later in the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Rome. Do you remember our study of Romans last year? Romans chapter 1 opens with the announcement of God's judgment on all the rebellious and horrific sin of Gentile people. And as you read through chapter 1, you might hear a religious voice in the background saying, that's right. Tell them, Paul, you tell all these wicked, desperate sinners, they've exchanged the glory of God for, for this other grossness. They're, they're inventing ways of being evil. That's right. Get them, Paul. You tell them that the wrath of God is coming. And then you get to chapter 2, and Paul makes a hard pivot, and he says, chapter 2, verse 17, you call yourself a Jew? You rely on the law and boast in God, but you dishonor God by breaking the law and the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's the same sort of pattern we find here in Micah. Judgment is coming and God is coming to judge his people. So friends, throughout our, our study of Micah, we have to resist the temptation to condemn the world while being blind to our own sin. That's the real struggle for us in, in reading the book of Micah is that we would have villains in mind, whoever the villains are, whoever we have decided are the people deserving of the judgment of God, and we would read uh, hard passages like this and we think, that's right, get them. We've got to look in our mirrors. The book of Micah is a mirror itself in which we look at ourselves in our self-righteousness and in all of our sin and we have to hear the message of the prophet. Now, our study of Micah should not create doubt about our standing with God. That's not what this is. That's, that's not what Micah's after, not what I'm after. But far from it, the book of Micah should give us perfect clarity. You see, God's people in Israel and Judah were willfully breaking their covenant with God, abusing His grace despite His many warnings. 
It, it was still, from all outward appearances, a very religious society, right? The temple still stood in Jerusalem. The holy days were still observed. The Sabbath was still observed. And, and while all this outward religion was going on, they were also chasing idols. They were corrupt. They stole. They victimized those who were weak. They had all the outward markings of a religious person, but their hearts were utterly rotten, their lives full of God-hating corruption. And so just as Micah announced this judgment on those religious people, we would do well to find ourselves in this warning. The sobering reality is that it's entirely possible to live a religious life without ever turning to Jesus, without trusting Him for your salvation. You're surrounded by religious people everywhere you go. Did you know that? We are not a nation of atheists. We are deeply religious people. It's just a matter of what religion you subscribe to. It might be a Christian religion, might be a cultural religion, but make no mistake, the, the people we live around are deeply religious people. God's concern is not whether or not a person is religious, it's whether or not a person is His. So you may pass muster for uh, cultural standards of morality and religion. You may even pass muster for what a Christian might assume to be a religious person. But God knows our hearts. He knows who belongs to Him and who does not. The question is, do we belong to Him? And God's judgment is coming with this sobering surprise. He has the church in view. God's judgment is certain. It's shocking the third characteristic of God's judgment is that it is mournful. In verses 6 to 9, Micah puts the grief that comes with God's judgment on full display. It starts in verses 6 and 7 where Micah announces the judgment on the city of Samaria and by extension the whole kingdom of Israel. So look at what he said in verses 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they'll be used again for a prostitute. Verse 6 describes the utter destruction of Samaria. From Micah's vantage point, verse 6 is future tense. From our vantage point, it's past tense. And so it begs the question, did this happen? Did verse 6 happen in the history of Samaria? Was it made into a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard? Yeah, it happened. Incrementally, but it happened. The city was located on this oval hilltop about 300 feet high, isolated from the hills around it. And as you saw a little bit ago on that outline, in the year 722 B.C., the Assyrian army took uh, control of the city after three years of siege. The city was destroyed then by the Assyrians. It was uh, not long after that, rebuilt, and then it was utterly destroyed again a few hundred years later by the Babylonians. And then around 108 B.C., the city was completely razed to the ground. So yeah, verse 6 happened. 
And then what about this line, this line in verse 7 about the wages of a prostitute? It, it can be confusing language even for Bible scholars. And so here's their best explanation for how to understand this line. Uh, it says, since she collected the wages of a prostitute. Who's the she? Well, it seems that the she there is God's people. It's Samaria and by extension the northern kingdom of Israel. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, how did that take place? How did they collect those wages? Well, remember, uh, idolatrous worship was taking place all over the northern kingdom at this time. And one of the hallmarks of this uh, false worship was visiting temple prostitutes. Gross things happened. Wages were earned. It seems that Micah is saying with the wages earned through this gross practice, they bought decor and furniture and lined their pockets. And then one day, the enemy nation will come, destroying the city, will take captive those wages and then take them back to their nation where that money will once again be used for gross purposes. This is the language of judgment. It is punishment. It is consequence on the sin of God's people. And it's truly startling whenever we sit in this and and we hear this sort of language from God to His sinful, broken people. And it should create this sort of emotional response in us. It certainly did in Micah. When we get to verses 8 and 9, we finally get to Micah's reaction. And his reaction is visceral. It begins by describing the sound of his grief. He says, I will lament and wail. And then we get to see his grief. He says, I will walk barefoot and naked. And then he gives us this animalistic description of what he's feeling. He says, I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. Look, Micah doesn't respond to this vision of judgment with happiness or glee. He's gutted by it. It leaves him undone and wailing. And why is his reaction so extreme? I I think the answer comes in verse 9 where he says, Her wound is incurable and has reached even Judah. There's no fix for Samaria. The, the, The days of grace are long gone. Judgment is coming. There's no turning back. They have rejected God over and over. There were 19 kings in the history of that northern kingdom. You know how many of those kings walked with God? Zero. Not one. Her wound is incurable. The judgment of God is coming, and it is proper. It is justified. It is valid. It is horrifying. And those incurable wounds, Micah says are infectious. They've come all the way to Judah. And so Micah's own people will one day face that same judgment. Micah weeps at the judgment of God. He's not the only prophet that does so. Daniel wept at the judgment of God. So did Jeremiah. So did Isaiah. So did Jesus. Luke chapter 19 verse 41 As Jesus approached and saw Jerusalem, he wept for it. They closed their ears and their eyes and hearts to him, and they'll receive the judgment they deserve, and Jesus sobs. How does Jesus feel about wicked sinners who receive a just and eternal punishment? He weeps. 
just as Micah did at the horrible penalty of sin. No one in Scripture delights at God's judgment on sin. No one rejoices. No one's glad. From time to time in church circles, we might whisper with glee when the bad guy gets undone and, and, and we feel like God has the upper hand. But I'm telling you, we do not share the tears of Jesus enough. The judgment of God is a mournful reality that strikes at the very core of our being. And so here in our study of Micah, we begin with this initial glimpse at God's judgment on sin. This is not all that's going to be said about what God's judgment is like. But this gets us started where we need to start. And Micah's told us this today, that God's judgment is certain, it is shocking, it is mournful. Now, as we study Micah, there are going to be some beautiful passages of grace, and we're going to make the most of those passages. But then there are passages like this that are really heavy. And look, my tendency is uh, I want to rush you to comfort and grace. I want to get you out of the discomfort. I don't want to sit in the muck of this any more than we need to. So I want to pat you on the head and say, it's okay, you're okay, I'm okay, Jesus loves us, let's, let's go do our thing. But I can't do that. I have to fight that temptation in myself. We have to hear Micah's message with both ears. We have to believe what Micah said about us and about God. The Lord will come in judgment on his own professing people. And you may have a remarkable religious pedigree. You can have your doctrinal ducks all aligned. And yet at the end of your life, you could hear a sobbing Jesus say, Depart from me. I never knew you. But the better tears today would be tears over our own sin. The Christian life is not all laughter and joy and ease. There are such things as Christian tears, and I'm afraid we rarely experience them as often as we should. Paul seemed to cry these tears again, Romans chapter 7, verse 24, when he said, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this dying body? There's not enough sorrow for sin among us. And if you will mourn your sin today, you need to know that you will not be left for long in those tears. Jesus has a promise for you, a promise from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. I want you to hear it. I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The mourning spoken of here in Matthew chapter 5 by Jesus, this is not like the everyday grief, the, the common grief, the hard grief that we carry over the situations in our lives, but rather this is a grief over our own sin. It's a mourning over our brokenness. It's the sorrow we carry as we read Micah chapter 1. And Jesus promises to comfort us in only the way, the only way that can relieve our distress, and that's the free forgiveness of God. The greatest of all comfort is the removal of our sin and the gift of Christ's righteousness. And we're given the comfort of His forgiveness because Jesus absorbed the brutality of God's wrath on sin in full. 
You remember what Mike has told us about God's judgment this morning? It's certain. It's shocking. Uh, what else did he tell us? The last thing? It's certain. It's shocking. It's mournful. And so was the cross. Christ's death on the cross was certain. From before creation, God knew what creation would require in terms of our redemption. And his death on the cross was shocking. It's shocking because of who it was for, sinners like us. And his death on the cross was mournful, but only for three days. Because then on the third day, he walked out of that tomb, victorious over death and over sin, ready to comfort us in the grief of our brokenness. So Christian, if the weight of your sin is great, and it should be, then receive the comfort of the cross today. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to talk to you specifically for just a moment. Verse 9 said that Samaria's wounds were incurable. They were beyond hope. They rejected God's grace over and over until he gave them what they wanted. And that can be a scary thing to hear about anyone because then we might ask the question of ourselves, am I beyond hope? And, and I want you to hear that you are not beyond hope today. The word of the Lord has come to you. And what can that be but the grace of God? And if this word from God produces in us a guilt, a conviction over our sin, then how good is God to not leave you indifferent Man, the, the worst thing to hear from God is silence. So if you've heard his voice, you've heard something good today. Because maybe you didn't realize what a desperate problem your sin is. You would evaluate yourself as a good person. You, you know people who are worse than you. And you know the good things you've done and the good things you intended to do. But when God from his holy temple evaluates your life, all of our lives, he sees that we come up short, way short of what is required for salvation. Even so, you are loved by him. Although you've lived your life in abject rebellion and in grotesque sin, you are loved by your creator. And the evidence of that love is Christ's death on the cross for your sin. He died in your place for your sin, took your penalty on himself, and no one else could do what Jesus has done for you. No one else can die for your sin. We all have sins of our own we have to atone for, but Jesus alone, God the Son, came and died in your place for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and his promise to you is that if you will turn from your sin and your self-righteousness, if you will turn to Jesus, you'll be forgiven you'll be his. You need to believe that his death and resurrection are sufficient for you, that they are all that you need for your salvation. And he calls you today from the mouth of Micah, surrender to Jesus, be forgiven, be comforted. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all of your word. And thank you for your prophet Micah, who speaks to us. This is your word once spoken and still speaking. And Lord, we confess that we do not grieve enough over our sin. We do not sit enough in uh, your judgment. 
And Lord, my desire this morning, the desire of your word is not to turn us into people who punish ourselves, but rather that we would be pushed in the gospel to the cross through this message. So thank you that uh, time and again in our study of Micah, when we hear of your judgment, we'll be reminded of what you did with that judgment at the cross and how you made a way for us, sinners that we are. Lord, that your grace abounds to everyone that comes to you. Lord, make us profoundly uncomfortable with the realities of our own sin. May we share the prophet's lament as we consider the sins of your people and the sins of this world. But may we have an unbreakable hope anchored in Jesus Christ, died and risen again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, This morning, uh, we are going to respond to this.